Um, we've been making our way through the book of Romans. And last Sunday, you had the privilege of hearing my dad speak while I was on a backpacking trip. And I hope you enjoyed listening to the sermon as much as I did as I was listening back on it. Um, and one thing I found, um, it just, it took a lot of courage to do what he did, to not be a native English speaker and then get in front of all of you um, to give a talk. And then also, it takes humility to do what he did because I didn't even ask him to. Well, I was going to, but before, before, he, before I even, as I was going over his sermon, he said, I'm going to use all the images and the metaphors that you're using. And I'm not going to say anything that goes against what you've said in the sermon series. And I was like, thank you. Thank you, Dad. Thank you for not have, me not having to ask you to do that. And for you, as my father, to submit yourself to my authority. And I think that's just a really neat example of a father to son, especially in a Christian sense, where he now sees me as a peer. Um, and that's something that I do not take lightly and that I do not think is an easy thing within Chinese culture for that to happen. And so it's a testament to the work of Christ in his life. And so given that, um, one thing he did, I do, I do think is like my father, or I'm like my father, is he did embellish some aspects of his storytelling. And for example, he said I read 50 books a month I never read 50 books a month. It was not 50 books a month. I mean, I think that's crazy. That's crazy. It was 50 books a year that I read. And I also know that, um, and I, I, I experienced, because he talked about having these um, personal business commitments for, with, with me, like he didn't have a father. And so he set up these um, basically like OKRs, objective and, objectives and key results for me, starting when I was 10 years old. And there were three of them. One was to read 50 books a year. Two was to get straight A's. And number three was, um, don't make my brother cry. Okay, and so um, the, the second one I never did. I never got straight A's. And then the third one, I made my brother cry like all the time. And so I failed. Um, but I was able to read at least 50 books a year. And here's the secret, guys. Choose your own adventure. Okay, it's choose your own adventure books. Did anyone read choose your own adventure books? Okay, several of you, good, all right. Oh, people over, okay, not everyone over 30, but people over 30, you get, you get choose your own adventure books and these books are like 200 pages long. And what you do is, because it, it gives you a decision, you have to go like, do you fight the dragon or do you not fight the dragon, right? If you fight the dragon, you turn to page 20. If you don't fight the dragon, you page, you, if you flee, you turn to page like 50, right? And then I'll just keep my thumb in there to like find out what happens, because one of them you die, right? And then it just stops and you want to find out the path where you die. And I would always find out one, the one where you die and then I would just keep reading. You can read those in like an hour, okay? You can read that book in like half an hour. And so that was my hack. I would always, I would read these choose your own adventure books and I was able to keep that law. I was able to adhere to the standard. But the other three, the other two, I was not. And what Paul is dealing with in chapter seven is what happens when you cannot meet the standard of the law. What happens, what happens in that regard? And so if you have your Bibles or your scripture journals, and I think our greeters, we might have some extra scripture journals, but if you have your Bibles or your scripture journals, you can turn to Romans chapter seven. Okay, Romans chapter seven. And my dad talked last week about this metaphor of marriage and how marriage ends with the death of a spouse. And that, you, that because of, once the spouse dies, you're set free from this law of marriage. He's given that as a metaphor. And now in the rest of this chapter, Paul's going to explain this interaction that we have with the law and how sin takes advantage of it. And so I'm going to be reading from Romans chapter 7, verse 13, and I'm actually going to read till verse 25. I think there was some confusion about whether I was going to read the end of the chapter. I see that as a transitional sentence. You will have the slides up here. Okay, you guys ready? Romans 7, 13. Did that which is good then 
bring death to me. By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do not do what I want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I, so then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. This is one of the most popular passages throughout the entire Bible and also probably one of the most misunderstood and has lots of controversy around it. And I just want you to know all that's going to end today. I'm going to give the final word on everything in this passage. Yes, Wes is thanking me. No, of course not. So I come to this with some humility and I did make, I, I have to make decisions on how I interpret this. And I'm happy to entertain questions afterwards to discuss how I came to those conclusions. So the first thing that I wanna say as we come into this passage is that Paul is addressing Christians as he's talking. Paul is addressing Christians in this passage. So just as this, this whole book is meant to address both Jews, Jewish Christians and Gentiles, Okay, it's addressed both. It's addressed to both Jews and non-Jews. That is the purpose of Paul's letter here. And he's talking about how they are united by faith. Both of them are united in faith. Okay, and, and so the, one, one of the important things as you come to this text is to talk about the meaning of terms. And there's a term here that's a little bit confused. That can be a little bit confusing. And that's this idea of what is law? What does the term law mean? And Paul, in his... You could say genius, but also it's kind of tragic. Likes to employ the same word with different meanings. And what we're, that's what we're going to find as we come into this text. But let's first understand when he says law, what does he mean? Now, the first idea that it has to mean is law has to mean, especially for the Jews, the Mosaic Covenant. And by the Mosaic Covenant, I mean specifically the Ten Commandments that Moses received on Mount Sinai. But I also mean in a broader sense, the entire Old Covenant, the entire um, all the laws and commandments, that's what it represented for the Jews. This is a really important idea within the Jewish faith, within Judaism, and also for Christians. We think for Christians. But also, it's not just that the Jews were obsessed with this idea of law. The Roman Christians also were super interested as well. 
because ancient Greek philosophy up until that point had formed the bedrock, and still does, of Western civilization. So you have philosophers like Socrates and Plato and Diogenes who predate Paul by about 500 years. And then you have more recent philosophers like Aristotle, Epicurus, and Euclid. And these philosophers all helped usher in an understanding of government and law that were very prominent, that were emphasized and understood around the time um, that this letter was being written, and, and also about the Romans. And so this idea of law was important not just to the Jews, but also to Roman Christians, this idea of law. And so Paul's not talking about a foreign concept here to non-Jewish people. He's talking about a concept that would have been understood by both Jews and Romans alike. And so when I talk about law in this, in, in this message and the way Paul talks about it, first it means the Ten Commandments, the Mosaic Law, but it also means in a broader perspective, any kind of moral code, okay? And so what is it, what, how do I, how, how can I say that? Well, in Romans chapter 2, verse 14 and 15, there is this idea of this moral code for when Gentiles, I think I have it, I think I have this slide, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work, of law, the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. And so there is a sense that Paul is saying that even if you don't have the Ten Commandments, you still have this moral code called a conscience that, that works in your life. And one of Paul's point is that if you, when you follow when you fail to follow the law, that it brings death. And not being able to follow, law, follow the law is what has plagued humanity from the very beginning. Even when the first law, you could say, the first trans transgression happened, which is Adam and Eve's sin in the garden. So let me make some observations about law. The first important thing about law is that it is measurable. When you set OKRs, when you set objectives and key results in your workplace, they are, one of the definitions of them is they have to be measurable. You have to be able to measure it. Otherwise, you don't know if you got a raise or not, right? You don't know if you're gonna get a promotion unless it is measurable. That's why I think my dad was talking about this image of the speed limit, right? The speed limit is by definition a law because you can measure whether you're going a certain speed. And in our life group, we've talked about uh, the law is kind of like a COVID test, right? The law is like a COVID test. Like you don't know if you're actually sick until you, until you get a positive test result. The test result tells you that you're sick. In the same way the law tells you, it gives you accountability that you are sick, that you have this disease, and it provides accountability for it. And so I think this law is really important. Okay, the, the idea of law is really important. And if you've been in the church for any amount of time, then you recognize what law is about. Okay, you recognize what law is about because if you've gone to church, then you recognize that the law allows you to sort people. Okay, one benefit of the law is that it allows you to sort people. And when I say that, I don't necessarily mean it as a good thing. I just know that I couldn't follow, I couldn't get straight A's and I couldn't not make my brother cry. I had to make him cry, but I could read a whole bunch of books. And so what I did as a kid is when I went to the library I would just get that big stack of choose your own adventure books. And then my little brother, which my dad also shared about, he would have like a little stack of books. And I would always lord it over him. Like, man, I, Jason, I read so many more books than you. 
I am so superior to you. And if you have siblings, then you know, I mean, and my parents compared, our, compared each other. They didn't realize like, it's not good to compare siblings with each other. And you know, my dad, my brother and I have been in therapy you know, to kind of resolve those issues. But um, the point was, we spent a lot of time just comparing ourselves to each other. And I knew if I just excelled in one area, I could lord it over my brother and think of myself as, as superior. And that's one, I don't wanna say benefit, but that's one thing that happens with the law is that you can sort yourself. You can figure out who's superior to another. And so when I describe that kind of behavior of superiority or, inferior, in, or inferior, inferiority, I'm talking about a phenomenon that was practiced. It's not necessarily talked about in Romans, but Jesus talks about it in terms of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They were a religious ruling group during that time that took pride in laws that they could follow and do better than other people and that they could see themselves as superior to. So there is this hidden feature in the law that allows people to sort themselves and feel superior. So what then? What then does Paul say about this? In verse 14, it says, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. So let's just take a minute and just understand what that phrase means. For we know that the law is spiritual. This is verse 14. If you can put it up, Ethan, that'd be great. They know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh. Uh, 7.14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. So the first thing I would comment, law spiritual means it's good. The law is of the spirit. Its nature is of the spirit of God. But then it says, I am of the flesh, sold in our sin. So there's this other opposing aspect of ourselves that isn't right with God, that is mortal, if you will. And then in 15, it says, um, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. And so Paul's almost talking about this, uh, this force that's working inside of ourselves that is opposed to what the Spirit of God wants to do. And as I've talked with many of you, I think th I haven't met someone who doesn't relate to this kind of a force. And what I appreciate about the way that we approach life group is we look at the sermon passage ahead of time. And so it's actually pretty neat for me because I get to um, have some ways to do an illustration. And so one of the illustrations that was shared um, this past week in our life group was from the 2018 movie, Venom, where the title character is an alien, and I think I'm hoping I'm gonna say this right, symbiote, I think it's symbiote. Sim the, there's an alien symbiote <laughs> who cannot survive without an oxygen breathing host. And that symbiote is called Venom. He finds Eddie Brock and they bond together to become the superpower anti-hero. And the two characters, they share a single body and you can tell who's who in the movie because the actor Tom Hardy, he does like a, like a dragon voice for Venom and he does like a normal dude voice for, um, for Eddie, right? But they're, they're kind of, it's kind of like almost Jekyll and Hyde. They, they both exist at the same time in the same being, and there's kind of this dialogue that goes back and forth between the two of them, between what is good and what is, what, is, what is wrong. And so I think that's a really good picture. That's a great image for the act of sin in our lives. And the thing that causes venom to activate is the law, is when you have some kind of moral code, that's what activates venom. But the problem isn't the law itself, the problem is venom. And throughout the book of Romans, what I've been discussing is that there's actually different ways you can understand sin. Sin's actually kind of a complex idea. The first idea is obvious to any of us. Sin is behavior, right? So when the Bible says, do not murder, murder is sin. Easy, right? Second, and a little bit deeper, is this idea that sin is thinking. 
Sin is like the innermost beliefs that you have. And that includes things like pride and fear and rage and envy and resentment. So on one hand, you have sin as behavior. On the other hand, you have sin as pride. And then on the third hand, I got another hand here. On the third hand, sin is also like this cosmic force, this evil that takes over you, this alien symbiote, and you can almost say parasite because it doesn't give you superpowers, this alien symbiote that takes over inside of you that isn't you, but has a voice inside of you and that causes you to do things. And so that's what, that's what Paul is talking about in 17 to 20. Like, let me read uh, verse 19. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin, venom, that dwells within me. And so this is kind of the beauty or tragedy of being a Christian is that you can always blame someone else, even if it's you, (laughs) okay? You can always blame someone else. You can blame venom. You can blame venom inside of you, that it's not actually you that's operating. It's sin inside of you. Now, we all know that Paul is talking, you know, kind of metaphorically, and we recognize, of course, you are accountable and responsible for your actions. You can't blame someone else. But he's talking about this experience of like, it's like having an alien inside of you. And I think it's important for us just to take a minute. I just want you to, you don't have to share with anyone, but just take a minute to imagine a time where you have experienced this hidden war inside of you between venom, between sin. It happened to me just this past week as I was talking with healthcare providers about a mistake that was made. And I think my, I think my kids were listening, listening in. And I'm on the phone with these healthcare providers. And of course, I was disconnected a number of times over the last couple months. And then I've been put on hold. And every time I'm on hold, it's like uh, there's this uh, being inside of me speaking to me, right? And on one hand, I have this thing like, don't get mad, don't get mad, don't be a jerk, don't be a jerk. And this other voice, tear her head off, (laughs) okay, right? The voice of venom saying that to me, right? And these voices are competing with me. And all of it stems from this law or standard that I have in my heart, which is don't get mad. Don't get mad. That's the law. That's that moral code. But it triggers this venom inside of me. And so here's here's some observations that I want to say. Again, the beauty of what Paul is saying is you are not venom. You are not the sin creature living inside of you. You are separate from that creature. You are separate from that creature. But that war between that creature and you exists. And so I just want to say for those getting baptized, for Trina, for Al, for Joanne, I just want you to know after you get baptized, life is not going to necessarily get better for you or easier. Okay. It won't get better or easier. In fact, you may suffer even more because you will become, you will have a heightened awareness of that hidden war inside of you. And sometimes you may not win, at least in the context of this battle, you may not win. Like you may feel for a certain amount of time, like your life getting worse. Okay, if you've been a Christian for a a number of years, even after you've been baptized, you can testify to this. Your life may not get easier, you will suffer, and you may fall, you will definitely fall into this battle. And yet what Paul is saying is like, this is actually not the normative experience of what it means to be a Christian. There actually is a solution out of it, but there is this internal struggle that can happen. And so the, one of the questions that you might want, that you might be wondering is if you're not a Christian, do you also experience this? And I would say, absolutely. 
It's also possible to have this kind of experience if you're not a follower of Jesus. And what do I mean by that? Is that sin nature is gonna operate anytime you encounter a moral code. All you need to do is have children and tell them what not to do and see what happens, right? And you will see them operate against a moral code, right? That there's a universal idea that whenever... Um, you tell someone not to do something, that sin operating in that person, whether they're a Christian or not, they're gonna fight and rebel against it. And so Paul is talking about a universal experience. And I think what is absolutely um, tragic for us today is that we're surrounded by a type of law all the time. And so especially for young people who wrestle with anxiety and depression and really all ages, when you get on social media, you've got to realize that you're looking at a type of law. You're looking at points of comparison. You're looking at images that you're going to measure your life against and you realize you fall short of. And so you may, because it triggers this kind of venom in your life, this tyranny of what you should be doing. I call it the tyranny of the should. And so you, should, you would see like you should travel to exotic locations, you should deadlift 600 pounds, you should have a church of thousands, you should have an exciting and fulfilling career, you should film your cat doing a backflip, you know, all kinds of shoulds that are going to operate as you navigate, as you navigate social media because it functions like a law in your life that triggers that venom force that you want to fight against. And so let's, let's read this concluding statement that Paul makes about law. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. And I want to pause here and just note that this term law here, Paul is now using in a different way. He's not talking about a moral code anymore. He's not talking about the Ten Commandments. He's talking about law as a principle. Okay, he's talking about this principle. So I find this principle that when I want to do right, evil, lie, venom, sin, lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God, that the true self delights in the law of God in my inner being, but he sees another law, another force waging war against the principle of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. So there's another force operating. There's a secret war that's operating inside a person, inside a follower of Jesus. And what Paul is saying is that this happens because of sin's interaction with the law. It's a universal, it's a universal principle and there needs, we need some kind of deliverance. And what we're going to see is in verse 25, there's act, Paul says, thanks to be to God. Okay. But then he's like, so then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. There is an antidote to this hidden war that the follower of Jesus experiences. And that antidote is called life in the spirit. And in Romans chapter eight, we're not going to discuss today. In Romans chapter eight, you're, we're going to find out that antidote, what it means to walk in the spirit. You, can, you get to walk by faith in the spirit as in contrast to the flesh and to the law. And so everything Paul has said up to this point, if you remember in Romans six, we had a statement, I am a slave of Christ and I serve no other master. That is still true. Everything Paul says in Romans six is still true. Romans seven is not the exception. It's not an exception. It's just, a, it's just part of the normal Christian experience of struggle, but it's not meant for us to live in. 
We actually have a normative experience of living life in the spirit. That's what makes us a Christian because it's universal to struggle against the law because of sin. And so what does that mean for us? What does that mean as far as um, what, what kind of application will we have? Now, the first thing I want to note is that our interaction with law, like I said earlier, it can actually give you some powers. You know, it, it's not totally parasitic. It actually gives you some powers and you can, you can debate with me whether it's truly a power. There is some benefit we get because of law, because law is good. There, it's good to have a standard. But we just need to know that even as the law interacts with the flesh and our sinful desires, it's easy to feel superior to other people and it's easy to feel inferior. Because here's the thing, there's no way that laws or rules or a moral code can make you a better person. Everyone thinks that's the basis of religion. You get a whole bunch of rules, they make you a better person. But like my dad said last week, and as I've been saying, religion is, Christianity is not about sin management. It's not about getting rid of crap in your life, getting rid of excrement. That's not the point. The moral code can't do that. You're always gonna have this struggle. You need something totally different. You need a completely new way of living that is by faith and through the spirit. That's what it means to believe in the gospel. That's what it means to be baptized and have new life. It's to live by faith in the son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. And so what's Paul's point here is that there is a period, there's a time of despair over our own sin that is a necessary aspect of the Christian life. There's a, this is a necessary despair. You know, at every service, we have kind of this time of confession where we recognize the sin that we've done against God. And that's a necessary aspect to despair over in order for us to recognize God's forgiveness and how we are no longer a slave of sin. Because the moral code is not going to make you a better person. You need to be set free from it. And it's just like my dad's illustration about the Autobahn, right? That life in the spirit is not about speed limits. It's not about speed limits. It's about living in a way that you can't measure. You don't measure life in the spirit. There's something immeasurable about life in the spirit. Now, sure, you can talk about fruit of the spirit and love and joy and peace and gentleness, but those are difficult to measure. Those fruit are difficult to measure. And that's intentionally that way because life in the spirit doesn't operate the way moral codes do. And so what I hope you experience, my hope is that you experience today this despair from this internal war that goes on inside of us and to recognize that with sobriety. So again, for those getting baptized and for those of you who are wrestling with that today, know that there is a despair associated with it. And yet there is hope in Christ that there is freedom from life in the spirit. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for the gospel. That in the gospel, you speak to us. And there is a condemnation without Christ, that without Christ, we are completely helpless and broken. We not only do sinful behaviors and think sinful thoughts, but we have this cosmic force inside of us that takes over. And so Lord, would your spirit help us recognize the depths of depravity in our hearts, how broken and helpless we are apart from you. But we recognize that the solution for us is that we need to die. Our old life needs to die and we need a new life within us, a life that comes from the spirit. And so Lord, would you renew us today? Would the picture of baptism be deeply understood inside each of us? that we would recognize our old ways have passed and the new has come and that we are a new creation in you and we no longer live according to the written code, which is good, but we live by the spirit. We live in a new way. 
So Lord, would you help us experience that newness of life today? In Jesus' name, amen.